Welcome to Bandwidth, the podcast about band directors and how we combat burnout to preserve some bandwidth for ourselves. Thank you to Evan Fujimoto for the music and to LMC Media for the artwork. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and give the show a rating and a review. If you're listening in Spotify, I'd really appreciate it if you give the show a follow. This week, we head over the, to the other side of the Rocky Mountains, closer to the Sierra Nevada Mountains, to hear from Jonathan Grantham, director of bands at Amador Valley High School in Pleasanton, California, which is between Oakland and Santa Clara. Those who are in California know Amador, and if you've been to the Midwest Clinic, you've likely seen their win ensemble twice. John is one of my teaching heroes and is really doing such amazing things with his program and his community. The program has exploded in the 20 plus years that he's been there with over 300 students in the marching band, five concert bands, two jazz bands, a few winter guard groups, and a bunch of other things that I'm probably missing. What I've long admired about this program is his long range view and broad view of not just his program, but how it fits into the greater community and not just his school community. Hello, I'm here today with Jonathan Grantham from Amador Valley High School in Pleasanton, California. Um, it's nice to be on break now and uh, to be able to rest and I got to hear your um, your band uh, performed through YouTube. So congratulations on some very successful performances. Students sounded great. And Thanks so I'm much, sure Jason. I'm sure you're super relieved that marching band is done and and you get to kind of relax, but you've got a busy January coming up, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm officially on break as of this afternoon and already got my first nap in. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to a couple of weeks of rest and then back at it. Yeah, you're already winning. So like, I've always been enamored with your program from afar, right? And I got to see you, you know, spend a day with you and, and serving your students and uh, watching Edwin teach as well. And it's just like, just amazing how well you run such a large program and it's not total chaos. Cause whenever I've mentioned to people that, you know, you've got 300 plus kids on that marching band field, they're like, how do you even fit that many people, let alone, <laughs> you know, manage it so that it's, you know, that not only are you accomplishing the goals that you set up for them, but also that it's just not uh, total chaos. But to me, like, it seems that you've built this amazing culture around the band uh, and that takes years to do, right? So can you kind of describe what that culture is like from your perspective and how that impacts the program as a whole? You know, I actually want to lead with uh, a short story that happened just today uh, a young lady came back to visit from college she graduated last year so she's just finished her first semester at university and she stopped in to say hello and the first thing she said to me after saying hello mr grantham was the band room feels just the same it feels like home <laughs> and that to me is how i want the room to feel for the kids when they're in it but it also feels really great to know that when they've stepped out of it that it feels like that to them when they come back. And so for me, the culture of the program is really built around this idea of students feeling safe and seen and able to let their guard down and be fully present and available to explore and understand who they are at a developmental time in their life when they're trying to figure that out. And so uh -huh. there's room in that band, band, band hall for them to do that. 
So over time, that that desire to have the the band room feel like a really welcoming, open, invitational space, not just for creativity and and performing and creating, but also for connection. Yeah, and then it's that that connection to other people that keeps us, you know, coming back. Maybe for some students, that's more more so that than the than the music itself, right? And, Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think every, especially in those formative years, they. You know, a lot of kids really need that. Maybe even more now, right now. You know, in, in the last few years than than ever before. So, um, how's that? Like, what are some of the key things that drive this culture? You know, and things that you emphasize with them. You know, or maybe some of the the messaging that that happens. And and how do you know that it's working? It is, as you mentioned uh, a moment ago, it is something that's been built over time and sustained over time and evolved over time. I've been at Amador for 21 years. And so certainly what I bring to the table now in year 21 has evolved from year one and the students are not the same as they were 21 years ago. And it's an entirely different generation of students. So there's the need to kind of evolve and, and adapt. I think some things have felt true through duration of that time, and that's uh, honest and meaningful and uh, just real kind of relationships with the students, a desire to be as open and connected with them as possible in ways that, of course, are, you know, professionally appropriate. But uh-huh. this idea of, you know, being able to show up as myself in the workspace to kind of model that as a starting point for the students to show up as themselves and you know celebrating and encouraging them as they are but i guess the answer to your your question more directly is that we have a, a values in the program that are articulated and created by our student leadership team and our values in the program come down to three words a community commitment and growth and those are words that were decided upon by the leadership team and reinforced with actionable items to make sure that those goals and the, or those values aren't just kind of words that we say, but they're actually ways that they show up in the actions that we do as uh, people within the community. And so what's great about values that have actionable items attached to them is that we can, as a team, when I say team, the other teachers, the student leaders, the students themselves, we can revisit what we're doing and how we're doing it through the lens of those values and say, yeah, you know what? We are doing these things. Our community is strong. Our commitment is strong. Our our growth is strong. And because they have been so clearly articulated, they're really it's an it it's becomes easy to revisit those those values and then decide if as an organization we're living up to them. And then also if they need to evolve or they need to change at all. Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah, we can like, I could clearly see those things in, you know, in the students and in, in rehearsal and whatnot in, in the messaging that folks uh, said. So how, how's that affected you in terms of like your workload, your, your personal stress level and whatnot? I mean, I think anybody who's done any tour of duty in music education knows that it's uh, not for the faint of heart uh, and and it can be a grind. Um, there okay. certainly have been just like full disclosure. There have been times when I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, and, and, and in fact, I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I weren't honest with your audience about the fact that I did leave the teaching profession 
um, after teaching for two years in a small uh, town back home in my home state of Michigan um, because I I didn't think I could continue in the profession. Of course, I came back and it worked Uh out okay. So I think how I've been able to sustain this longevity in the field has been centered around a lot on surrounding myself with really good people who know more than I do, uh, creatively and educationally. It's a mix of many things, like surrounding myself with these really great people, um, designers, other teachers, leaders in the field, finding mentors, uh, and then colleagues who are my age or at my experience you know, my tenure in the profession who I've grown up with that have been able to kind of, we've grown alongside each other as now kind of long-term teachers in the field. And that, but I think I'll save the best for last. I think the most significant part has been learning how to turn over a lot of it to the kids and to trust the students to be able to carry parts of uh, maintaining, cultivating and creating the culture you know, when I started at Amador, there were 130 students in the band and the color guard, and I was 28. And now there are 312, and I'm going to be 49 next year. So I mention that because I have had this kind of cool opportunity to grow as a teacher as the program grows, has grown, but also to learn how to turn more of that over as I've, I've kind of gotten out of my own way, like with ego and control, feeling like I have to do everything a certain way in order for it to be right. I'm putting that in air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and because I've turned more of it over to the students, it means that they're sharing in the responsibility. They're also sharing in the work and I'm not carrying it alone. I mean, none of us are ever meant to do that, but sometimes we take it on ourselves as, uh-huh. as music teachers. And we, I, I think we, I think you do a good job of sharing the burden of, um, of care for the for the piece and the and the the performance, you know, for their, their their fellow section members, other people in the band, you know, you you see, um, you see a lot of that that in that culture, and um, yeah, that's incredible. So so in this what twenty one years now, this gigantic program has been amazing <laughs> places. You know, you've been to Midwest twice. You've done BOA as a finalist. You know, many times you've you've you know, you've done all this amazing work with. Uh, new compositions and things like that. So what kind of things do you attribute um, all that success to? So it's it's a, a mix of things. I feel very fortunate to teach in a community where there is a really incredible ground level of support from the parents and an investment from the parents, support and investment from district and site administration that has been true over many decades now so there's just something that has been baked into the dna of pleasanton and amador valley high school as uh, communities where there's been a willingness to kind of invest in these opportunities these things that have that we've been able to do as a program over the last couple of decades and so that without that I mean, I think those things are possible, but they are harder. <laughs> yeah, and for sure. so I re- I recognize that first and foremost, um, that where I teach and who I teach has made a lot of this possible. I think I I am unashamedly kind of an ambitious person. Like I, I like to look for the big project and see how it might be possible to do that. And I sometimes will just leap 
uh, at opportunities. When I was younger, I'm a little more calculated now, but we'll leap at opportunities without always thinking through. Uh, and I think in some ways that has been helpful because I've been willing to take risks and then just figure it out as I go. Um, and I'm thankful for that kind of being a part of my wiring because it's allowed me to kind of fall up, <laughs> yeah. if you will. Um, and then just kind of, and then the trust in the relationship with the kids as we've leapt into these opportunities when they've pre been presented to us, there's been a lot of trust relationally there that's allowed us to achieve some pretty special things. Yeah. And I, I like, I really admired, I, I did see, you know, and when you look at, you know, I looked at um, demographics and, you know, the um, performance of your school and whatnot. And, you know, there, there's definitely a good number of things that w you probably wouldn't be able to rec replicate in most other schools, you know, around the country. Like, so you're, you're, I mean, obviously very, you know, these, these students are very fortunate to be at this school and in this community and with these parents. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I saw just something small. I think there was a, there was a cable, there was a mic cable that wasn't working that needed to be replaced in a pit. And rather than you or Edwin going out and doing it, you asked a student, Hey, can one of you guys run to guitar center and get a new cable and then we'll reimburse you for it. And it's just these little things that you're, you know, you're offloading. So that, that, that brings us to the, the next question. So I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about artificial intelligence and I'm not sure if you're familiar with chat GPT and yes. um, yeah, I, I played around with it a bit and it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, it's, it's a little bit scary for us in the academic world because of what, what it can do, uh, or it can be, you know, wrong at times too, but, um, they brought up this idea of cognitive offloading, and this was in the context of students using calculators for math work and going away from this idea, right? This notion that we were taught that, well, you know, you, you got to learn how to do it because you're not going to have a calculator in your, in, you know, with you all the time. What's well. Most of us have calculators in our pockets right now. Right. 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 So at, at what point is it okay for us to say, okay, you can do this computation using this tool and whatnot. And I started to think about how this applies to us as teachers and you do a really good job of reducing that cognitive burden, right? Through the delegation to, um, to your staff, to student leaders, like you said, you know, to, you have experts, people who, you know, they've they've marched more recently than you and I have. Right. And so they've, they can, they have a different way of explaining maybe the same idea, right. Or maybe a, a different set of eyes, you know, for things that, that we have. But, um, I really love that lesson planning sharing that you do that, that, that grid that the kids get. So can you kind of talk about how that works? Because if I were to go back in the classroom, I would totally steal that idea because I yeah. think that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of one of those examples of the the cognitive offloading. I'd not heard that term before, but I love that um, because it, I, 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 can't, I don't take credit for this idea. I think I actually heard it from Scott Lang, who, for anybody who's not in music education, Scott Lang is a really phenomenal, uh, you know, music education leadership person who does a lot of work with young people and teachers. And I've known Scott for a good number of years. And something I heard at one of his, one of my first times hearing him now many years ago was this idea of what needs to be done that doesn't specifically require a music degree. And that for me has been a slow rolling uh, invitation to do the cognitive offloading where I can just recognize my exact expertise is not needed in this moment to make this thing happen. Who can help with that? Um, 
And it's even more powerful when you can turn it over to the students because then they feel a sense of trust and ownership. And as adults, we have to be very judicious about what kinds of things we're turning over to students. You know, I'm not having students like input grades and doing attendance on on our attendance portal. I'm not having them, you know, pick repertoire and plan the itineraries, but uh-huh. there's plenty of cognitive offloading that happens. And so to circle back to your question about the lesson plan template, I have a weekly rehearsal schedule that I post outside the band office so that every student, we have five concert bands at Amador. And so every student in every class can see what we're doing each day of the week for every week of the year. Uh, It helps me also to get clear on what I'm doing for the week. So I'm not kind of inventing what's happening day to day in real time. Uh, But it does allow them to just know what's happening. There's no mystery. There's no question. Oh, these are the pieces that we're playing. This is the day we're doing marching music. That's the day we're having the scale test. And it's a way to just make sure they have clear visibility to what the plan is every week in the classroom. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah, because I, I like that idea of, you know, I, I think you, you had it laid on it. And uh, for those listening, and um, Jonathan does, he does have a blog online, and I'll, I'll try to link that um, later on so you can check it out. But it's it's neat because it puts, resp- you know, these are students' responsibilities. These are things that we're, we have to do in rehearsal to where we just, we just need reps. And these are things that I need to, you know, I need to, um, I must do myself, right? Like, I need to lead you through this because I am the one with the degree on the, the conductor. And then there's other yes. things where it's, it's this is what we have to do together while we're all in the same room, you know, listening, the intonation things, you know, some vertical alignment and all of that. And um, I think it, I was looking from the, trying to look from the perspective of the non-serious, you know, the, the, the student that's least likely to become a music major down the road um, that, uh they can plan out for when they've got exams or they've got a big project or something time they when can I when I could when can I tuck away time to to study for this other thing, right? And when do I really have to have this thing in this Tchaikovsky, you know, all the <laughs> get these notes work grind it out, right? And so <laughs> where where can I allocate, you know, allocate my resources as a student to, right? Because yes. I, I think I I've seen too many models and I think I've probably been part of some of those, you know, where it was just kind of expected that, you know, the, the band came first and then everything else was second, right. In, in, in the eyes of that, or at least that was the, that was the way that the message was received, you know, for me as a, as a member of that ensemble. So that can be, um, I think a dangerous thing to try to sell, sell to kids who have a whole lifetime ahead of them. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, You know, I don't, uh, I don't have, I'm not delusional around the fact that most of the students that I'm teaching are not interested in pursuing a career in music. And I, I don't think of myself as responsible for training professional musicians. I, uh-huh. I have had lots of students that have gone on to major in music. I mean, over the course of my career, I say lots, but it's, it's maybe five to 7% of the overall students that I've taught. So for the other 95% of the students, what is the what is the point of them being there? And I think you're you're smart to kind of infer this idea of zooming out to larger lessons around how to be a functional adult, how to be a good community member, how to be a good citizen, how to glean skills of commitment, repetition, follow through, doing what you say you'll do. These these things that sometimes we find 
can be lacking. Um, you know, when we step into other adult spaces um, outside of education, I always find myself saying to my, you know, were you a band? Was this person a band student? <laughs> they're giving me oh. band student vibes because of how they're mm-hmm. how they're carrying themselves. Um, so I totally totally hear what you're saying about like the need to really make sure that I'm giving the kids these tools and these skills to know how to be a part of something bigger themselves without the end goal being that they're going to become professional musicians or teachers. Yeah. And, and the, and the kind of the way that we structure our programs, the way that we present ourselves, and this is always of modeling, you know, healthy adult behaviors and, and functional, uh, you know, functional social behaviors. So that's, you know, that, that's wonderful. I, I just, it excites me so much to see that kind of, the kind of thing in action, you know, in schools. So, but with, with those five concert bands and this gigantic marching band, and you've got, um, you got Winter Guard and, and all that stuff. I mean, you have to be one of the busiest people on the planet. Um, and I just get exhausted thinking about that schedule, but you, it still seems at least to me from the outside that they're still making time to keep balance between work and school. So how do you make that work for you? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the particulars of what is asked of, you know, I'm not, I'm not unique in the busyness of my job and I'm also not unique in the number of facets that I'm juggling. So I definitely don't, this is the thing I learned from my trombone uh, professor in college, which is no one of us has the market cornered on busy. And so I, I think one thing that I've, I've done is I've, I've tried very hard not to kind of self victimize, (laughs) you know, this idea like, oh my gosh, I'm just so busy. Like nobody understands how busy I am. I've, I've tried not to stay in that space. Um, just, it's not healthy for me to, to kind of like go there. Um, also, um, the ability to kind of keep looking forward is super helpful, but what I'm reflecting on is this idea that, um, in my district, I'm not required to be at everything that's happening at the program. So I, I actually know that there are some districts and some states that require like a credentialed teacher to be at every guard practice, to be at every percussion practice. And that's not true um, because our coaches all go through like a vetting process that's almost comparable to that of a credentialed teacher. That counts as supervision. So I'm able to help manage and, and uh, guide our guard and percussion programs. But it does mean when marching band is done, I have a more sane schedule. I'm not I'm not away from home three or four nights a week. So there is this ability in my the rhythm of my year to kind of take December through August to charge the batteries, you know, because I'm not I while I'm busy uh, the other parts of the year, the busyness is contained within the school day and maybe an hour and a half to two hours after school to finish up admin work or, or score study or lesson planning. So how I'm able to sustain it is that it, I've created a sustainable model. You know, no one's asking me to do all these things. So at the end of the day, I, I get to create the hoops I'm jumping through. So if the hoops are too frequent or they're too large, then I just make them less or smaller. Yeah. So, so in the, in that same vein, like we chatted a bit during my visit about how you've adjusted the marching band st- schedule where you folks actually have less rehearsal time, which, you know, most people would not see as, as a good thing, you know, uh, but the band, I mean, still sounds great. They look great. Um, so what did you, what'd you change? Like, what was that reasoning, you know, 
And how did it work out for you folks in the end? I, I think it worked out really, really well. Um, you, you know, I would say that I'm, I'm not looking to measure the success of our season year in and year out, our marching seasons year in and year out through like where we place or how we finish. Um, yeah, we had a solid, we had a solid competitive uh, run this year as a marching band. Um, I felt really good about the product and our, our processes were really healthy and good. Um, and the change in the schedules were really predicated around just not wanting to be gone so many Saturdays. So our, our schedule, our regular schedule, which was true last year and for many years before COVID was uh, Mondays and Wednesdays from six to nine. And then every Saturday from nine to four that we didn't have a competition uh, with a carve out for like homecoming and Labor Day weekends. And and our marching season in California goes until the weekend before Thanksgiving, so it's a, it's a long season here. Sure. Yeah, very in long. California, yes. And so with Edwin, the assistant director, he and I imagined um, moving our Mondays and Wednesdays uh, to start at five and end end at eight. So we were rehearsing the same number of hours, but we're on the turf an hour less each day because football wasn't done until six. So that allowed us to kind of rethink how we would use that warm-up time before we got into the stadium and then just be super efficient with our turf time. And it meant that we were home at nine o'clock instead of 10 o'clock. Huge change. More sleep. I actually get to see my partner on those nights because he's not in bed. So just kind of like lots of improvements on the on the week schedule. And then we got rid of most of our Saturdays and moved them to Fridays when we didn't have football games. Um, and that gave all of us a much needed time off on those Saturdays in the fall before the competition started. And just, I felt fresher and had more bandwidth to just stay with it through the whole season, you know, and I'm, I also, I'm like, I'm not a young, I'm in pretty good shape, but I'm not a young teacher anymore. So just the ability to kind of sustain that number of hours over that many number of weeks, I just again, I'm creating the hoops. No one is contractually saying you have to rehearse every Saturday from nine to four. So we didn't <laughs> and yeah. it worked out. Okay. Yeah. We, we got the job done. Uh, I thought the kids marched and played really well this year and we had, you know, 30 more kids on the field than we did last year. And a third of our band was ninth graders. So we made it, we made it happen. And I'm, I'm really proud of the organization for that and proud of us for prioritizing wellness and, and self-care while not totally sacrificing the educational goals of the marching band. And, and again, that's a, you know, it's a good model for the students too, right? It's because they're getting home earlier. They can get, they can spend more time with their family or maybe it's doing homework or, you know, their own, their own life balance that they need, um, as much as we do too. So that's amazing that, that it's worked out. And, um, yeah, I, I um, applaud you folks for, for, for doing that and, and still managing to have a very successful run run this year and that the, the show looked great kept getting better every time i saw different uh performances so uh bravo to you uh both um so i can i wish i could remember where i heard this um because i really want to credit that person but somebody in music education was talking about how we don't have to level up every year you know if we mm. did a grade four piece this year uh, you don't have to do grade five next year i mean it's not it's not an obligation right and this natural progression isn't always higher in difficulty or complexity. It's not, you know, we're going to add five more, five, six more pages to our marching band show next year. Um, you know, and, and that, that hit me kind of hard because I, I know I've been caught in that trap to some extent 
before. Um, and I, <laughs> you know, much like you, I mean, I, my ambitions get the best of me at, at times. Right. But what do you, what do you, uh, what do you think about that? I think there's a lot of, for me, you know, of course I can't speak for all of music education. I think for me that rings true because when I have been able to dismantle my own ego a bit and step out of the way and think about what's really best for the students and what do they actually need and want out of the time in the classroom, I've learned in through trial and error and through experience and through checking with the kids or all these different ways, I've learned that they actually they don't need all of the things that I sometimes have thought they've needed. They don't need to play a hard piece to feel like the music is worth it. They don't need to go to another festival to feel like their time has been valued in the classroom. Um, and so to that end, it's really helped me to just teach the band that's in front of me, not the one that's in my imagination. I don't always get that right, but I'm get, I'm better at it than I used to be. And so that has meant not not feeling this stress or this pressure to always feel like I'm trying to level up, whatever that means. And then this other part of it too, is that like, what am I leveling up? Like the band this year is not the band that it was two years ago. So I, you know, I, there, the variables that I am in charge of are just helping to create a really excellent environment and great music with the kids I have in front of me. And I, I have to make those decisions in real time based on what shows up in August. Um, so I, I guess where I'm going with all of this is giving myself permission to really create something special for the kids I have in front of me and not feel like it has to be better than whatever was the year before because they're not the same. Yeah. But one of the things that um, you sh- you'd shared with me was that, you know, um, you've had, you know, as a director, if you had 23 sophomore classes come through your door, right? But those students only get one sophomore year, right? I, I really love love that view because it's 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 student focused, right? We focus on the people and people in front of us, right? Not those that have come through the doors already, you know, um, not our not ourselves. And um, you know, there was there was a particular year that we had, I had, uh, it was a it was a weaker trombone section than I would have, you know, would have cared uh, cared to have. And there were you know there were a few numbers, so uh, there was it kind of. At first, I looked at it as it was a damper on on what we could do, but I also realized, hey, what I have in front of me is a really great woodwind section, so let's do stuff for them, you know, and then let the trombone section grow as they need to grow, with you know, you know, I guess you could say, you know, training wheels on for a bit, you know. So we did we did the Kelly Simple Gifts, and that was a really great highlight for them, while very low risk on the trombone. Um, trombone side um and um yeah so can you kind of talk through like how you you came to that um conclusion or that it was you know that view yeah yeah it was it was definitely something that i learned from my high school band teacher something that he helped share with me early on um around this idea of you know your students are only freshmen once in your program and they're only seniors once in your program. And even though you've done this cycle many, many times, they're only doing it just once. And so there's, there's both a respect and a responsibility that comes with that knowledge. The respect is really remembering, um, to honor their experience because it's just the one time that they're going through it. 
um, and to really try to stay empathetic to you know, like the fact that my ninth graders year in and year out have the same strengths and challenges developmentally because they're ninth graders. And I'm going to have to like teach those same things over and over again because it's their first year in high school band every single time. So uh, a mentor of mine shared with me that we're professional reminderers. So this idea that uh, it's our job to remind our students over and over again about things. And that really freed me from this level of like feeling frustration around having to say something again and again because we're professional reminders. So thanks to Shelly Durbin, my mentor for that. Uh, but uh, to my to my band director's point, um, Mr. Parker, there's the respect and then also the responsibility to then make sure that my students each year that they're in the program feel like they're getting what they need in that in that lane. Because what a ninth grader needs is not what a 10th grader needs, it's not what 11th grader needs, it's not what a 12th grader needs. So I have a responsibility to make sure I'm guiding them through each of those years with a specific developmental and educational kind of lens that helps them feel like they're moving through a sequence, not just musically, but um, developmentally. And so the respect and the responsibility piece have really helped me to just see that as part of my job rather than this weird reactive like burden that I'm bearing every year. Like, oh, these kids don't know anymore what they're doing. It's like, well, they've never known what they're doing. So am I the problem? And it's like Aunt Taylor Swift, like I'm the problem. It's me. Like I'm the anti-hero. Yes. I need yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, we, you know, I, I saw you folks teach that, that, that lesson that day was all marching band stuff with them, but you know, the ninth graders needed more reps, right? They needed that reinforcement yep. of, of, of this and that, because they need, they don't know what it feels like yet, or not enough of them know what it feels like yet to, to do, do it at the level that you're asking. Whereas, you know, we got to that, that class, I think it was all juniors and you could give them a comment and not follow up with a rep because there was a trust, um, you know, there's a trust in them that they were going to take care of it because you were going to see them later in a rehearsal that afternoon. But also, um, there was an expectation that they, this is their responsibility to, to make this happen down the road and you have, you have faith in them. And, um, I love that, you know, I mean, that might. We might not be able to do that in, in all communities, um, but I think the way you have your, your system set up, that, that totally works. And, um, and it, it's a huge boost, I think, to um, what, what you get from them uh, towards the end. So, um, yeah, wonderful. I'm just so, I'm just always so impressed. And, you know, as I, you know, have met with other people and they're asking, well, how's it, how, you know, how's the sabbatical going? How's the project going? And it was like, I'm just always raving about, um, the things happening at Namador. So bravo to you and to Edwin for all that you've done to, to make that happen for those students. Thank you. It is, it is yeah. a really, it's been a really special place to be and something that is really important to me is I just, I love the way like an ordinary Thursday feels, you know, I, I, Midwest State Conference, Carnegie Hall, you know, London New Year's Day Parade, these these really like externally significant benchmarks for the program have their own special memories for me. But the thing that keeps my tank full is just the joy and like an ordinary Thursday where we made good music, the students got better, there was laughter and connection and humor and purpose. 
Um, and those are the things that are, those are my headlines. Those are the things that keep me coming back day in and day out. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Okay. So we're going to get into some lightning round questions. So, yes. um, yeah, it should be fun. So what do you do when you need to recharge your creative juices? How do you fill that bucket? I, I actually do other creative things. So for me right now, that's floral arranging. So I've gotten very much into floral arranging. So when I need to feel like a recharge creatively, I use my creative talents in other mediums. Oh, very nice. Like I love for me, like I love going to art museums, especially mm. um, in, in new cities where I, I may not, I, I mean, I know they've got a Rothko there and I love work on Mark Rothko. And so I was like, I want to see a different one, you know, in different light and, you know, or just other, um, LA's got this, um, the LACMA has uh, a bunch of uh, German expressionist uh, art there. And, and I f when I saw that, like, I finally started to ex understand a little more expressionist music because I got yeah. to, I got to see it. And I guess I'm just very visual in that sense. So yeah, that was, that was, you know, a nice recharge for me. And I, I, I think we, I did go to MoMA in, in San Francisco too, on this trip. So I love MoMA. I said yeah. MoMA. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. Okay. Three questions you've got. Uh, if you could, right? Three questions you got for Leonard Bernstein. Wow, that's really good. Three questions I've got for Leonard Bernstein. Oh my gosh, you might have stumped me. Oh, oh you're doing okay. Candide right, right I, now, right? I am doing Candide, and also I, I'm making my way slowly through his auto, through his biography right now, and it's incredible. Um, what is Aaron Copeland really like? Hmm. Uh, they're contemporaries, right? Yes, yes, they're contemporaries. Uh, yeah. uh, and very, very different people. So what was Aaron Copeland uh -huh. really like? Um, did you really like spending that much time with young people? <laughs> mm. <laughs> All of his young yeah. person's guide to the orchestra stuff. Uh, yes. He seemed like he did. He seemed like he did. And then um, were you ever afraid that you weren't enough? Oh, wow. Because he comes across as a man who is, is very, very confident in his work, right? Yes. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Fearless. Yeah, fearless. That's what, and so I just, I just wonder, is, Yeah. I would wonder if there was ever a time where he didn't think it was, yeah, I just, yeah. So that'd be my three questions. Oh, you got care. my brain working. A, a that was really that, fun. Oh, <laughs> a friend of mine and one of his answers to the question, did you see that video where he was asking the triangle player to, to do, I don't remember the piece, but he was asking him to do something different. And the, and the guy just couldn't understand what he was asking for. And, um, but he said, yeah, I, I want to know what he was really looking for out of that triangle bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay. And okay. Last, last one, uh, three totally ordinary things about you. I love cleaning. I am a very type A minus personality and I love chocolate okay right on um that I was very stream like of conscious <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't know if those are the I, those are fairly ordinary but they are presented without any sense of priority or preference <laughs> yeah um that somehow came up in in something where you know we get asked, right, you know, 
three, you know, tell us something interesting about you when you do these group introductions going around the circle and whatnot. And, you know, and the, the person had brought it is like, okay, but you're going to have some people in your group that, um, don't think they're extraordinary or, or don't think they're, you know, uh, they're not an interesting person or they don't do interesting things. Um, or maybe they don't have the means to do what, uh, the other people in the room consider interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, I found that like a, a nice way to, to kind of soften that int intro with folks that you don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the idea of, I mean, I, I think there's kind of beauty in the mundane as well, you know? So I, 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 while I don't think of those things as extraordinary, hence your question, I do think that yeah. there are interesting things about people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, getting to know those those people because yeah, you might you might find that person that who just really loves to clean. I've got a, I got a friend just like that too. Yeah, she obsesses over it to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for making time. I hope you get to have all the naps that you want over the next few weeks and get to recharge. Best of luck with your. CMEA performance and and all the all the big things that you've got planned for this school year. Thanks so much, so, Jason. It was an you. honor to be a part of the conversation. No, thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. In speaking with Edwin Cordoba, Jonathan's teaching partner at Amador, who is also amazing, he shared that Jonathan really has the students' hearts in mind. I thought that was a perfect way to describe him. It's hard to encapsulate everything that they do into words, but I'll see if I can figure out how to best take what I observed during that full classes, full day of classes and rehearsals and break it down into things that those of you in the field can take away. We'll probably do another episode on that. I did get to spend a full day with them doing a lot of observations and just kind of being a fly on the wall and uh, figuring out, you know, the unseen things that a student might not see or parents may not see. Um, there is always a very, very clear goal and vision of the time spent together, which is shared with the entire ensemble and staff. There's no secrets about what, what we're trying to do. Everybody knows, and it's a school of very, very high academically performing students as well. So these students um, are being pulled in other directions, not just ban, and they have this in mind with them. The long range trajectory of each student is also thoughtfully considered in all stages of instruction and program design. And most of all, balance in life and music's role in all of that is highly valued. And they do a great job of ensuring that from the top down, everyone in the organization gets to experience that balance in life. What they've in invested in the intentional design of their program and instructional methods has paid off in spades. And I am always in awe at not only what their students accomplish in performance, but in the growth they experience both as musicians and as human beings. Their student leadership program is second to none. And you can see this buy-in that they get from everyone because it's genuine. It's not this cult kind of mentality. They this feels right and human and um, genuine and authentic to what everyone's experience is there. So if you get a chance to interact with Jonathan or Edwin and their program or get to see them teach, do it. You will not regret it. 
Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed it, please give me some comments and a review in Apple Podcasts. Um, We'd love it if you subscribe and share it with friends wherever you get your podcasts from. Be sure to stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you.